Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that when we sin, we're out of fellowship. We're walking according to the sin nature. And in order to recover our walk by the Holy Spirit, we need to confess our sins, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins in silent prayer to God the Father, and we're instantly forgiven of sin and cleansed from all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're very thankful that we can come together this evening, that we can focus upon your word, that we can be encouraged just by being together with other believers to reflect upon your goodness, reflect upon uh, your grace and all that you have provided for us. Father, as we continue our study in this section of Romans, we challenged with our the fact that you have gifted each one of us with spiritual gifts for the service of the body of Christ. May we continue to uh, seek ways that we can serve you and in the process of serving you, uh, enhance that service through the use of our spiritual gifts. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the last couple of lessons, we've gone through spiritual gifts. So this is a third lesson by way of introduction, and I'm just giving a summary here. And then as we, uh, then following that, as we get into the exegesis of the next couple of verses, it'll go fairly quickly because we understand the biblical framework. As we'll see tonight, there are three basic passages in the Scripture that talk about spiritual gifts. They're easy to remember if you can remember the number 12, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and then uh, Ephesians 4. 4 divides into 12 three times. So you just have to remember that, and you've got it. Okay, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 are your main passages, though, and they're both 12, so that's an easy way easy way to remember it. The last time we got through the sixth point, which was that spiritual gifts are not earned or deserved. The gift is given at the point of salvation, but we have to develop it. Uh, the gift, it's, uh, or rather the gift itself is not developed or learned, but we have to, uh, but using it effectively may be learned, uh, depending on the gift, but we have become more effective in our use. And I used the example last time of a pastor teacher. Pastor teacher receives a gift of, of pastor teacher at the instant of salvation, but he still has to go through seminary, still has to go through uh, classes related to teaching, education, has to learn how to do Bible study, has to learn the languages, has to learn theology, has to learn how to think critically. I'm always amazed when I run into people who make statements like, well, so-and-so has a gift of pastor teacher, don't you? Can't you just pick up the Bible and teach it? You know, it's not a gift of knowledge. It's a gift of communication. And pastors have to go through education. There was a time in this country when pastors held a high standard, and no church would worth its salt would hire a pastor who was not well-trained in the original languages. I don't know if I told this story or not, but in my first church, which was a church down in Lamarck, which is the last little city on the mainland before you get into, you cross over to Galveston, the pastor of that church, who had been the pastor there from 1933 to 1973, was a graduate of Moody Bible Institute and Austin Presbyterian Seminary. 
When he was ordained as a Presbyterian pastor in 1933, he had to pass reading exams in Greek and Hebrew. He had to answer oral questions from his ordination council relating to the exegesis of the passages in the Greek and Hebrew that he had just uh, just read and translated as part of his exam. If he wasn't if he wasn't competent in Greek and Hebrew, then he would not get ordained. Now, all some in, in many churches, all you have to do is have the gift of gab and be able to gather a crowd of people together and or re- recite what some pastor has taught you, and you're ordained. You don't have to demonstrate competency. This is why in the last 30 years, one, uh, pastors have become some of the least respected uh, have, it's, the, the pastors and the clergy has become some of the least respected in um, among the professions in the U.S. Now, that's due to some other factors as well, but part of it is because they have lost the professionalism that was once there because churches no longer require the high standards that were once there. And in many denominations, they brought that on themselves because rather than teaching content in the seminary, they teach them a lot of how-to courses related to management, people skills, counseling, everything but the Word of God. And so this leads to a dilution of the integrity of the pulpit. And so we need to demand quality. So this is part of just an example that spiritual gifts are given to us. We don't learn a spiritual gift to get it, but you have to develop your uh, and mature in your ability to utilize your spiritual gift. Now, in the, in the uh, seventh point, there are two categories of spiritual gifts, and we'll probably spend most of our time tonight and sometime next week, I doubt we'll get through all this tonight, talking about this issue because it is an extremely controversial issue in some circles, not as controversial in other circles as it was in some places have just quit uh have just quit having a controversy over it, but we have to explore what the Word of God says. There's two categories of spiritual gifts, and the best classification coming from the way the scriptures t- uh, talk about them is to call them permanent gifts and temporary gifts. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about sign gifts, but the Bible doesn't necessarily classify all of these as sign gifts. But they are, but the scripture does indicate that some of them are temporary, that they were not designed to be part of the life of the church throughout uh, its history. They were temporary in nature. So two categories, and we're going to talk about these a little bit, and it helps to, to be able to compare the passages that list the gifts. Now, I hope everybody can see this. I had to uh, bump the font size down a little bit so I could get all of this on here. But the uh, gifts that I have highlighted in, with a blue background are the temporary gifts. Uh, the four columns represent the gifts listed in Ephesians. I put 2, 8, and 9 there. Uh, that should be uh, 4, 11, and 12. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. I'm going to correct that on the fly. Okay, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Apostles and prophets are also listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And in Romans 12, 6 to 8, you have the gift of prophecy mentioned. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11, at the beginning of the chapter, gives a list that is uh, almost, that all of them are temporary gifts. And some of these were not sure what, how they functioned or what they were because this is the only mention of them in the scripture and there's not even a reference given anywhere else. But due to the influence of the charismatic ministry, and usually this is uh, some of the more extreme word of faith 
uh, heretics on the extreme end of the charismatic movement. They've really defined for contemporary culture word of wisdom and word of knowledge. They didn't get their definition from the Bible. They generated it out of their own experience, and that's not how you do biblical theology. So we don't know what a word of wisdom was. We don't know what a word of knowledge was. It has to do with some sort of message. It might even not, it, it might be that it's not even a revelatory gift or that they are not revelatory gifts. It may be a, a gift related to uh, wise application of scripture, a message related to wise application of scripture, or a message related to a wise, uh, or a message related to uh, knowledge in terms of understanding or insight into scripture. The fact that it has the, the, they're called a word of indicates that it may be related to some sort of special revelation. Since special revelation ended uh, at the end of the first century, then these would no longer continue. So they're more than likely related to uh, revelatory gifts, and that would mean that they would have a certain authority, and since it would be revelation derived from God, then it would be have the same level of infallibility and inerrancy as any other uh, divinely enabled utterance, and therefore it's not subject to error. So somebody can't have a mistake. Uh, this would violate a number of principles. We'll get into that as we look at prophecy a little bit. Faith is listed. Healings, that's obvious. Miracles, again, obvious. Uh, prophecy, we'll discuss some of the things related to that. So prophecy is mentioned in every list. Uh, discerning spirits, uh, tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Uh, later in 1 Corinthians 12, there's a, another list, apostles, prophets, teachers, healings, miracles, tongues, administrations, which may be uh, a better translation of that Greek word might be leadership, helps, which uses the word antilumpsis, means ass- giving assistance to somebody, and that's a different word from the word in the Romans 12 list, which is service. Service and helps in English may be very close to one another. And the Greek words may even be synonyms, but they're not the same word, so it's not the same gift. Uh, then Roman, Romans 12 mentions uh, uh, the gift of leading, which has the, uh, the Greek word has the idea of management there as well. So it's probably very close to the idea of administration. Uh, Romans 12 also mentions mercy, uh, exhortation, and giving. So that's all the spiritual gifts that are listed in Scripture, and I'm not sure that this that these are even meant to be exhaustive. There may be other gifts, and as I pointed out before, it's not really necessary to know what your spiritual gift is, to function in your spiritual gift. If we have the attitude as believers to serve the Lord and serve in the local church in whatever way we can, then over the process of our spiritual growth and maturation, then our spiritual gifts will be uh, uh, will be manifest in whatever it is that we do. We'll be strengthened in those particular in those particular areas. Now, we break this down, the categories down into temporary gifts and permanent gifts. The temporary gifts were distributed initially to the apostles and certain disciples who were closely associated with the apostles. They served as giving uh, credentials and authentication to the message of the apostles during the time that the canon of Scripture was being developed. Since the canon was incomplete and Revelation was incomplete, Scripture was not sufficient. An incomplete canon of Scripture could not be uh, thought of as sufficient. So during the New Testament period, and remember, you don't. Jesus dies in A.D. 30. You don't have the first... Uh, Epistle, which was probably 
uh, probably James, isn't written until the late 40s, 15 years or so after the crucifixion. Most of the Pauline epistles are not written until the late 50s, let's say around 58 to 68. And then you have uh, several others that are written during that period. The uh, Petrine epistles are written during that period. Uh, the Johannine epistles and the Gospel of John are not written until the late 80s and uh, completed by 95. So most of those are written late. So during much of the New Testament period, for about 25 years after the crucifixion, there's <clears throat> less than half of the New Testament has been written, and it hasn't had. They had th- these books had not had time to circulate among the uh, churches at that time. So they're operating on the foundation of insufficient revelation about the new dispensation of the church the new dynamics of the spiritual life related to the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And so it is through the gifts of prophecy and possibly the uh, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, that the believers are taught the truth about what is going on until the canon is is complete. And so these gifts functioned uh, during that particular time. The permanent gifts are given to and, and distributed throughout the body of Christ for the ongoing uh, mature ministry of believers to one another within the body of Christ. If you think about the uh, the different gifts, uh, whether it's evangelism or teaching, uh, administration, helps, service, mercy, exhortation, giving, these also represent responsibilities that should be carried out by every believer. Every believer is expected to give. Some believers have a spiritual enhancement in that area. Every believer is expected to encourage one another. We're commanded to encourage one another. But some people are especially gifted in that area. We're also to teach one another, not necessarily in a formal sense, uh, but we're to teach one another, but some are given a special uh, enhancement in the area of teaching. Same thing with areas of helps and service. We're to serve one another, we're to help one another, but some people are given special uh, enhance, spiritual enhancements and giftedness in those particular areas. So those gifts are permanent gifts for the edification and maturity of the body. Now, there are... As I mentioned earlier, two other terms that you often hear used when talking about the permanent versus temporary gifts. One is to classify, uh, it's not quite the same, but there's a lot of overlap between the um, temporary gifts and, um, and revelatory gifts. But gifts of healings, gifts of miracles are not revelatory. So revelatory is not a perfect synonym or temporary gift, but the revelatory gifts are those which involve some form of special revelation from God. That would include prophecy, the word, probably the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, and I believe the gift without any, this is my opinion, I believe the gift of apostle, that apostles had all the gifts, and that was part of their foundational ministry in the early church. I can't prove that, but I think that that, uh, when you look at what they did, they seem to exhibit uh, many, many, if not all, of the gifts uh, in their their ministry. Now, I want to talk a little bit about why we classify these gifts as temporary. There's a lot of debate over this, and, and this really didn't bubble up to the surface in the history of Christianity until the beginning of the 20th century. There were people who were seeking some of these gifts, gifts of healing, gifts of tongues, interpretation of tongues by the late 19th century, and that primarily grew out of a revival movement that began in the middle of the 19th century and is usually classified under uh, the terminology of the holiness movement. Holiness movement had its start uh, within a Methodist background 
in the middle 19th century as a desire to reform the church, the Methodist church, from the inside out due to a misguided perspective that somehow the church had lost its passion, the Methodist church had lost its passion, lost its drive, and some of this was based on the fact that uh, this was due to the fact that, that many of the churches in America were growing smaller from what they had been at the beginning of the 19th century. We now have historical perspective. They were shrinking because people were listening to the advice of Horace Greeley, and they were going west. And so people were leaving their home churches on the eastern seaboard, and they were headed east. And so the churches in the east were shrinking to some degree as people left and headed uh, headed further west. And whenever you see churches shrink, and churches all go through ebbs and flows of, of church life. You have membership comes along for a while, the church grows, and then uh, something happens, a lot of people have to move, or they get older, or whatever the cause is, things get a little, things, the, the population of the church drops a little bit, and we go through these ups and downs. What happened was they asked the question, what are we doing wrong? Well, they really weren't doing anything different or doing anything wrong. There were other factors, demographic factors, American expansion factors that were affecting uh, the demographics of the local church. Once you start asking the question, what are we doing wrong, if you're not doing anything wrong, you often come up with the wrong answer, and which is exactly what they did. And there was this was particularly tra- traced to a woman Bible study teacher in New York City who was the wife of a physician there. Her name was Phoebe Palmer. And they began to go back to the perfectionist teaching of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Charles Wesley and John Wesley, that somehow they had missed the boat and they needed to have a second work of grace that came after salvation. And so this second work of grace or dedication, would they identified with the baptism of the Spirit. So now what they've done is they, that you have one work of grace at salvation when you trust in Christ as Savior, but you have to have a second work of grace for spiritual blessing, for spiritual growth, which elevates you to a higher level of spiritual experience. Whether you call it dedication or yieldedness, or whatever it is, that, that's what they, that's what they labeled it. By the end of the 19th century, they began to associate the possibility of speaking in tongues as the sign of that, uh, of that experience. Nobody was speaking in tongues. The first modern example of anyone claiming to speak in tongues was on New Year's Eve, 19, uh, 1900, as you were shifting into 1901, when a young Bible college student in Topeka, Kansas, by the name of Agnes Osmond, suddenly started speaking what they claimed to be, what she claimed to be Chinese. It's interesting that in the early stages of the charismatic movement, they assumed that on the basis of the Bible, that when the apostles spoke in tongues, they were speaking in legitimate languages. It's only after a while that they realized that the people that were doing this weren't speaking Chinese or Arabic or Hebrew, that they changed their understanding and interpretation of the Scripture. The problem is they correctly interpreted the Scripture that speaking in tongues is the word glossa means a language, a known or uh, a, a, a recognizable language, even though the person may not have gone through the normal process of learning it. He had a miraculous ability to speak in a, in, in a normal uh, human language. So uh, with the, uh, that was the beginning of the, of the uh, charismatic movement, and it, at that time it's just simply known as a Pentecostal movement, and it was marked by the idea that you had a second work of grace after salvation that w- identified or that they identified as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and it was signified by speaking in tongues. 
In the history of that movement, it changed again around the 50s, and instead of becoming separated out from other denominations, they stayed in denominations so that you had charismatic Episcopals, charismatic Presbyterians, charismatic Baptists, and charismatic Methodists, and that became known as the charismatic movement. The terms charismatic and Pentecostal are technically different, so uh, often they're used together as the charismatic Pentecostal movement. And so that, that again, uh, developed, it was very controversial back in the 60s and the 70s, and there were a lot of people who tried to utilize linguistic studies and recordings of glossolalic utterances in order to somehow substantiate these as legitimate languages. And mo- many of these studies were conducted by people who were uh, in the Pentecostal charismatic movement, and a number of these were published in 30 years ago or so. I read through a number of these. Nobody could ever substantiate it. They never came up with any documented evidence of somebody speaking a verifiable language. And so they often came up with other ideas that they were speaking a Holy Spirit language, a prayer language, an angelic language. But the reality was that a linguist who analyzed any of these utterances uh, would uh, come away saying that they weren't speaking any language at all. Uh, whether you could understand the language or not is not necessary for a linguistic analysis. Uh, linguist, uh, 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 somebody who is a specialist in languages and linguistics can, uh, can spot patterns and determine whether or not somebody is speaking gibberish or speaking a language, and all of these turned out to be simply gibberish. There's no miracle there. There's nothing. I remember when students at Dallas Seminary would memorize uh, the Lord's Prayer in Greek or Psalm 23 in Hebrew or some other passage. And at the time, there was a huge uh, conflict over a Baptist church in Dallas who had gone charismatic, and they would go over there to their evening service, and they would recite something from the Greek text or Hebrew text and get a myriad of different interpretations and it was just a field test to see if anybody actually had the gift of interpretation or, um, or, or were even performing according to the standards of Scripture, and of course they weren't. So this is, this is a problem. But the issue comes down to understanding what the Scripture teaches. And in 1 Corinthians 13.8, it's very clear that the Scripture itself recognizes these distinctions between temporary gifts and permanent gifts. And it ultimately comes also recognizes or comes down to a recognition of the growth factor, the maturity factor uh, in the church. We'll look at that before we finish. 1 Corinthians 13.8 comes at the end of Paul's uh, remarkable explanation of the wonders of love in 1 Corinthians 13.1 through 7. We will notice in our... uh, passage in Romans 12 that Paul, uh, once Paul discusses the gifts, he's going to come back because they have to be balanced with love because one of the weaknesses with spiritual gifts is that people get all self-absorbed and full of themselves in terms of what their own spiritual gift is. And this is one of the things that was manifested a lot within the charismatic movement, but it's also been manifested in other churches where they put a lot of emphasis on training people in terms of their uh, their spiritual gift. So always has to be balanced with love. So Paul makes the point in verse 8, love never fails. He's making a contrast, emphasizing contrast between the permanency of love and the impermanence or the temporary nature of some of the gifts. Now, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you'll note that he begins with the, with the blanket statement, love never fails, and then when he ends this discussion, he says, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Because love is permanent. The everything else is temporary. Love is permanent. So your topical sentence shapes our understanding of this section, love never fails. And he's going to give 
three examples of things that are temporary. Prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. He says where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now, if we're going to start with the third one, when he says knowledge will vanish away, he's not talking about knowledge per se as something that will vanish away because in the internal state, of course, there will be a lot of knowledge. There will be a lot of things to learn. We will not be mindless uh, in eternity. It's not going to be just an absence of intellectual activity. He's talking about the gift of knowledge or the word of knowledge mentioned earlier in the context. The first thing he mentions is prophecies. Now, how in the world are we to understand prophecy when it's mentioned in the New Testament, when it talks about New Testament prophets or New Testament prophecy? The frame of reference should be the Old Testament. But in recent years, you have two er erroneous views of of the New Testament gift of prophecy. One has been around a lot longer than the charismatic movement, and that is the view that prophecy in the New Testament is the same or is equated to preaching or the proclamation of the gospel. Prophecy is never to be identified as preaching. And there are a lot of people, even non-charismatic evangelicals as well as others, who try to identify prophecy in the New Testament as preaching. Prophecy must be understood in terms of its Old Testament referent. There's no change. There's no place anywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or anywhere in Acts where the writer comes along and says, ah, we're talking about prophecy now, but it's not what you've heard before. We've spent 4,000 years where prophecy meant one thing, and now all of a sudden it means something else. There's no place where there's a redefinition of the term or the concept. So prophecy must be understood in terms of that Old Testament reference. So it's not preaching, and the other thing it's not is some lower-grade guess at what God's going to do. Now, I'm making a little bit of fun at this, but I'm going to give you some documentation in just a minute. But in the uh, mid-'80s, there was a scholar that came out of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up near Chicago by the name of Wayne Grudem. Today he's the president of Phoenix Theological Seminary. He's a well-respected scholar in a number of areas. A few years ago, he published a systematic theology, which is highly recommended and touted by a number of people. I have serious problems with a number of things in that theology. Uh, This isn't the uh, least of it. Um, But a lot of people talk about him as if he is... He is really great, but his claim to fame, what put him on the map, was his doctoral dissertation where he claimed that the biblical, or rather the New Testament gift of prophecy, was not the same as the Old Testament gift of prophecy. And here are some of the things that he said about it. He said, prophecy in ordinary New Testament churches was not equal to Scripture in authority. See, in the Old Testament, prophecy which is speaking, this is the word of the Lord, is equated to Scripture. But he says, no, the New Testament gift, just it doesn't have to pass the same quality standard. It doesn't have to pass the same test. Prophecy in ordinary New Testament churches was not equal to Scripture and authority, but was simply a very human and sometimes partially mistaken report of something the Holy Spirit brought to somebody's mind. In other words, you have an idea just pop into your mind and you say, oh, the Lord put this on my mind and I'm going to say it and attribute it to the Lord. And it may not be true. Or you may you may get it wrong. That's okay. That's New Testament prophecy. It has nothing to do with the Old Testament standards. He said New Testament prophecy is telling something God had spontaneously brought to mind. In another place, he says New Testament prophecy is an unreliable human speech act. Notice, unreliable in response to a revelation from the Holy Spirit. Finally, he says, this is a somewhat new definition of the nature of Christian prophecy, recognizes nobody else has ever defined it this way in all of church history. Further, he says, much more commonly, prophet and prophecy were used of ordinary Christians who spoke not with absolute divine authority, but simply to report something God had laid on their hearts or brought to their minds. Trouble with this is there's no place in the scripture that uses that kind of language. Uh, 
he goes on to say there are many indications in the New Testament. I want to know where because I've never found them that this ordinary gift of prophecy had authority less than that of the Bible and even less than that of the recognized Bible teaching in the early church. So he basically what he's saying is the Holy Spirit puts a perfect thought in your mind, but then when you're reporting on it, you just get it all messed up and make mistakes about it, and so it's not, uh, it's not exactly, exactly accurate. Now, I treat this kind of lightly, and I poke a little humor at this because I just find this so absurd. I just see the contradictions in this to be so self-evident. The trouble is this has become a dominant view among evangelical Christians today. But it just flies in the face of all kinds of not only biblical evidence, but also evidence from the early church. Evidence in how the, from writings we have, such as the uh, one particular writing called the Didache, which is uh, a, a short form, it was the teaching of the apostles. And there were even some early church fathers who thought that the Didache was so beneficial to people that it should be included in the canon of Scripture. Uh, dates as to its, its origin uh, differ. Some think it's as early as A.D. 60, some say 70 or 80, but it was clearly uh, written probably during the apostolic, uh, during the early apostolic period when the canon of Scripture wasn't closed. And so in the Didache, they recognized that there were people who still claimed prophetic utterance, that they were speaking by means of God the Holy Spirit, and according to what was said in the Didache, they were held to the same high standard as prophets, as anyone who claimed to be saying, thus saith the Lord, from the Old Testament. There are other uh, examples that I could go into from early church writings which demonstrate that in the early church, they did not view uh, prophecy functioning in the early church as anything less authoritative than the Scripture itself or than the Old Testament. So this is clearly clearly a problem. When we come to the New Testament, we have to recognize that the New Testament gift of prophecy is not redefined in the New Testament. It means the same thing that it meant in the Old Testament. Uh, Second, that New Testament prophets were seen as equal in divine authority as New Testament apostles, according to Ephesians 2.20, where it states that apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Third, a point I just made, early church writings from the late first century understood the New Testament gift of prophecy to be identical with the Old Testament gift. And finally, we must recognize that old, that New Testament prophecy died out with the closing of the canon and the passing of the last apostle. Because the ultimate group that you would appeal to for validation of your claim that God had revealed something through you was to the apostles. Once the apostles were no longer on the scene, there's no, uh, there's no one to appeal to. There's no board of verification to go to anymore. And when the canon was closed, that the content of the canon then became the standard or the rule of faith in the early church. Now, Paul recognizes that these three gifts are temporary, prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. Now, when you look at the, the way the text is written, two of these uh, gifts, prophecies and knowledge, are said to be nullified or to be abolished. The same word is used in the Greek to describe what will happen to them. It's a future passive indicative. The future means that at some point in the future, this will be abolished. Passive means that it, something is going to happen to cause it to be abolished. It's going to be the recipient of an action. doesn't state what that will be, but something will happen to cause prophecy and knowledge to be abolished. Tongues, however, is treated a little differently. Tongues ha- uses a different word, the word pao, which indicates cessation, that it will cease or it will die out on its own. It's used in a middle voice, which uh, could, would intensify that, and it indicates at least that whatever causes prophecies and knowledge to be abolished, 
uh, are, is not the same thing that causes tongues to die out. And there's an indication that that could be related to the purpose of tongues, which is what we get from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So just a couple of observations on this first section that we see, that prophecy and knowledge are both abolished, but tongue stops. Secondly, that prophecy and knowledge are both partial. This is, this is very important in the next verse. In verse, um, verse 9 states that we know in part and we prophesy in part. In other words, these are viewed as, some, as having some element of incompleteness or insufficiency to them. Prophecy and knowledge are both considered to be partial, and these partial gifts are what is abolished. So the second point, prophecy and knowledge are both partial, but the gift of languages is not said to be partial. And I would say that that's because prophecy and knowledge are both related to revelation, giving of revelation, and tongues was not a revelatory gift. Third, Paul states that the partial prophecy and the partial knowledge are abolished when something, I think poorly translated, but that's what we're stuck with, something called the perfect comes. We're going to have to figure out what in the world the perfect is. Uh, but prophecy and knowledge are abolished when the perfect comes. Look at verse uh, 10. When that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. What's in part? Knowledge and prophecy. The word done away there is the same word used in verse 8, that prophecies will fail and tongues will, and knowledge will vanish away. It's all the same word, even though it's translated differently by the English. It's all identical in the Greek. Fourth, Paul specifically uses this verb, katargeo, a final time down in verse 11, when he's giving an illustration to make sure the reader realizes that the putting away or abolishing of childishness at the end of verse 11, I put away childishness, that that is related to the cessation of prophecy and knowledge. And it's important if you're doing Bible study to tie these things together because by using that same word throughout this section, the Holy Spirit is bringing our attention to it so we understand the thread of his argument. In fact, Stan Toussaint, professor at Dow Seminary for many years, has said that katargeo means to render inoperative or to supersede. In the active voice, pao means to make to cease. Why is there a change? And he says, the change of verbs cannot be accounted for by saying that Paul does this to avoid repetition. You often find that among scholars. Is they'll say, well, that really doesn't mean anything. It's just a stylistic change. Uh, the problem is the Holy Spirit doesn't function according to rules of modern English writing. Modern English writing says, change up your words. Don't use the same words too often. The reader will get bored. Sometimes the Holy Spirit uses the same word again and again and again because he wants the reader to connect the dots. And the way they did that was to repeat the word again and again and again, uh, something that, they, that the Holy Spirit would be uh, graded down on by a modern English teacher in American schools. Paul did not fear overuse of a word as seen in this passage because he uses katargeo four times in verses 8, 10, and 11 in order to make this particular point. So in verse 9 and 10, he says, We know in part the spiritual gift of knowledge is partial. Partial is a term uh, related to completeness. That's the opposite. It's incomplete or it's complete. It has to do with quantity. He says, also, we prophesy in part. Prophecy gives us a little bit of a picture here, a little bit of a picture there, but it doesn't give us the complete picture. It's partial. So knowledge and prophecy are both partial. Then he says, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is partial, what would that be? Knowledge and prophecy. Well, that which is partial will be Abolished again. The verb katargeo uh, mean, renders means rendering it to no effect. Uh, 
Now, the other, the thing we have to really pay attention to is this concept of in part. That's the Greek is ekmerus, meaning that something is partial or incomplete. Now, that's going to be contrasted by that which is perfect. The word perfect in the Greek uh, is teleos, and it can mean, usually it means complete as opposed to incomplete. In one or two places, it may mean perfect in the sense of flawless. Flawless is a qualitative idea. If it's not flawless, it's imperfect, it's not the same quality. If it's complete, it's a quantitative idea. If it's incomplete, it doesn't have enough quantity there. So I'm going to use this term qualitative and quantitative. Well, if perfect is contrasted to partial, do we have a qualitative idea or a quantitative idea? We have a quantitative idea. Incomplete versus complete. So what we're talking about is that something comes along that completes that which is incomplete. Well, prophecy and knowledge have to do with giving of revelation. But the giving of revelation was a little here, a little there. It was incomplete until the canon of Scripture was complete. So the term complete had to do, has to do in context most likely with the completion of revelation. Now, as we look at the structure here, we see that prophecies are, which are incomplete will fail, will be abolished. Knowledge, katargeo, it will be abolished. And uh, they will be abolished, according to verse 10, when the perfect comes. So it's the arrival of this thing called the perfect that is going to end, end the, um, the use of these gifts. Now, some people have come along, and they've come up with all kinds of different ideas on what the perfect means. And I've listed these in this particular slide. Let's go back. Two categories, completion or perfection or flawlessness. Under completion, there are two views. It's either the completed canon or the mature church. Now, what I argue is these are two sides of the same coin. Under the perfection side, some say, well, this happens when we die. When we die, we're face-to-face with the Lord. And then we go down to verse um, verse 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. See, that's face-to-face with the Lord. Wait a minute, but we're going to have a real problem with that. Um, some people say it's at the rapture. Similar to death, we're face-to-face with the Lord. Then we're going to have uh, a clear insight second coming, or the eternal state, or if you just want to be nebulous and academic enough, you just call it the eschaton. Sometime in the future, we'll see perfectly. None of those actually work, as I'll show in a minute. Now, in James 1, the Word of God is referred to as a mirror. A person looks in a mirror and you see a self-reflection. You get up in the morning, you got bedhead, your hair standing up, you haven't shaved, you need to comb your hair, shave, you pay attention to what you see in the mirror, you respond to it. So the Bible is compared to a mirror that you, you look in the Word of God and it reflects what you see. Now the King James Version uh, didn't translate it in this manner, said now we see through a glass darkly. Well, glass and mirror are different things. If you're looking through a glass, you're looking through the glass at something on the other side. But if the glass is a reflecting glass or a mirror, then you're not looking through it at something else. You're looking at your own reflection. Now, the word that's used in verse 12 is the word for a mirror. And so that is used in James 1.23 in the same, same way we're using the Word of God uh, and comparing it to a mirror. In verse 25, it describes it as a perfect law of liberty. It uses that same word, teleos, to describe the Word of God. So what we have here, just to review, is the point is that 
love is permanent, but some of these spiritual gifts are temporary. In fact, there's a lot more than just spiritual gifts that are temporary. Prophecy and knowledge are incomplete type of spiritual gifts, and when something that is complete comes, it's going to end those incomplete gifts. Now, he's going to give uh, two illustrations in verse 11 and verse 12. Verse 11, he says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. He uses that word katargeo again, abolish, connecting it back to the uh, abolishment of prophecy and knowledge, making us understand that what we're talking about here is that when you move from immaturity to maturity, some things that were necessary at the immature phase are done away with and set aside when you hit the mature phase. Now, the question we're going to need to ask is, what is it that is thought of as making us mature? The hint is it's a complete canon of Scripture. It's the completed revelation of God. That's what makes the church historically mature. As a ch- And then in the next verse, let's go there and then I'll back up, we see this now and then um, comparison. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then at some future time, we will see face-to-face. Now, some people think this is face-to-face with the Lord, but that's looking at somebody else. That violates the mirror analogy. What we see in a mirror is we come face-to-face with who we are when we look at the mirror of God's Word. You're face-to-face with who you are when you look at the mirror in the morning. So Paul is talking about that there's a current situation where We see ourselves, but it's an incomplete thing. But in the future, it will be complete. Now, is that a future in time, right now in history, in our life, uh, in his life? Or is that future when we're face-to-face with the Lord? In, In this slide, we see the now, we speak in tongues, in terms of thinking, there's prophecy, and in terms of understanding, there's knowledge. But when the perfect arrives, these temporary things are set aside. And as we become an adult, then the characteristics of childhood, that is the necessity for these gifts, is removed. In the second part of verse 12, Paul says, Now I know in part. That word now is important. There are two different Greek words for now. One word means right now in the immediate sense. The other means now in a general sense. When we look at verse 13, he says, And now abide faith, hope, and love. The now there is a different word from the now that's used here in verse 12. That's really the key to understanding this passage. What he is saying is that right now... In this period in history, in my lifetime, because we don't have a complete canon of Scripture, this is what it's like. We don't see the full picture because we don't have the whole Word of God yet. But, and then he says, and now in a broader sense, in this age, what will abide throughout this age is faith, hope, and love. Okay, let's look at this. The now that's used here is the Greek word arti, And it's used in both of these sentences, indicating an immediacy now, right now. He says that we see in a mirror dimly. This is the Greek word enigma, where we get our English word enigma, which refers to something that takes a certain special insight in order to understand it because it is expressed in a somewhat confusing or puzzling term. Or it refers to something that's indistinct because the mirror is incomplete. Now, when it talks about face-to-face, this could easily relate to the imagery in Numbers 12.6 because there God is speaking face-to-face with Moses. It's a, it's a situation where God has appeared to Moses. And he says, I don't talk to those other guys 
mouth to mouth like I talk to you. In other words, I get in your face, Moses, and I'm talking directly to you, but I don't talk to any of the other prophets that way. And so this idea of seeing in a mirror dimly but then face to face is an illustration of prophecy. The other verse, verse 11, is an illustration related to um, the ending of of uh, knowledge. Numbers 12.6 uh, God says, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to, with him in a dream, but not so with Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. That's that word enigma. This is where Paul gets it and u- uses it in 1 Corinthians uh, 13. So he's contrasting this. God is speaking through visions to the other prophets, but he says that's not as clear as speaking mouth-to-mouth or face-to-face. So there it's related to giving revelation. So the child who's got partial knowledge, partial prophecy, has an incomplete reflection from the Word of God because the Word of God's incomplete. But when the perfect comes... The characteristics of childhood are removed, and we see face-to-face. So now in this current age, when we don't have a complete scripture, I know in part. See, that's knowledge. But then I shall know just as I am also known. When is this knowledge going to be? This is the second part of verse 12. I misspoke a minute ago said it was verse 11. Okay. Let's wrap this up. Under the child, we know in part. As an adult, we know fully. doesn't mean we're going to know exhaustively. doesn't mean we're going to know omnisciently because we never will. Even a billion years into eternity, we won't know everything God knows. We're still creatures with finite knowledge. But this is talking about complete understanding of who we are as described in the Scripture. So in contrast to the incomplete nature of prophecy and tongues, Paul concludes by saying, but now, nuni, he changes the word for now to a word that has a broader sense. Now in this age, what continues is faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these in love. Now let me tell you something. A lot of non-charismatics and most charismatics say that that the then face-to-face is face-to-face with the Lord, that all of the gifts will continue, knowledge, prophecy, tongues, will all continue until we go into the eternal state. Then they won't be needed anymore. But the contrast here is between, is between prophecy, knowledge, and tongues that are going to stop at some point And faith and hope and love will continue beyond the end of prophecy, knowledge, and tongues. Now, will faith, hope, and love continue into the eternal state? That's the model from the Pentecostal side, is that prophecy, knowledge, tongues all continue until the eternal state. Faith, hope, and love continue. It's obvious from the passage that faith, hope, and love continue beyond the end of knowledge, tongues, and prophecy. The problem is, when we're in heaven, there won't be faith. Because now we walk by faith and not by sight, but then we will walk by sight. We'll be face-to-face with the Lord. Faith ends when we're absent from the body and we're face-to-face with the Lord. So faith doesn't continue into eternity. Not only that, but hope doesn't continue into eternity. Romans 8.24 says, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. When we're face to face with the Lord, there won't be hope because we're seeing it. So that means that if faith, hope, and love continue beyond the end of prophecy, knowledge, and tongues, then prophecy, knowledge, and tongues have to end at some point in history. And faith, hope, and love continue beyond that point throughout the rest of the age. And then when we're face-to-face with the Lord, the only thing that continues into heaven is what? Love. Because love never fails. So what we see here, 
in terms of a timeline, is now in this early pre-canon period, prophecy, knowledge, and tongues are operational. But then something comes along and stops that. There's a completed canon of Scripture. And this continues through the rest of the uh, church age and into the tribulation. Faith, hope, and love are the dominant virtues. Quit worrying about prophecy, knowledge, and tongues. The issue is faith, hope, and love. But then when we go into eternity, whether at the time of death, when we're face-to-face with the Lord, or at the rapture, or whenever, what continues into eternity is going to be love. So based on just an understanding of the passage and Scripture, it's impossible to have uh, this, the temporary gifts continue beyond the early uh, the early church age. Now, some people have said, well, there's prophecy in the tribulation. There is. There's prophecy in the Old Testament. But those are not spiritual gifts by definition. We're talking about spiritual gifts, which are enhancements given by God the Holy Spirit to the church, the body of Christ. The church began on the day of Pentecost. The church ends at the rapture. What happens during the tribulation is related to the same thing that happened in Israel in the Old Testament. It's prophecy, but it's not the spiritual gift of prophecy. That's what we're talking about in these passages, spiritual gifts related to the body of Christ, not God's ability to raise up prophets as he did in the Old Testament. Those weren't spiritual gifts by definition. So that establishes our boundaries. We'll come back, cover this a little bit more next time, and then get into... Uh, or finish out the introduction, then talk about our passage in Romans 12. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through these passages this evening, to be reminded that your word must be understood in context, must be understood by comparing Scripture with Scripture and, and thought through in terms of historical grammatical exegesis. We understand that you as a sovereign God can do whatever you want to do, but you do it in conformity with what you have revealed about yourself in the Scripture. And, Father, we pray that as we continue our study of the gifts, that you will help us to understand exactly what you have revealed, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.